Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on Music Life Radio, we feature Ron Schock. He is a comedian with one hell of a backstory. His career path includes priest in training, chain gang member, attempted jewel thief and subsequent guest at a maximum security penitentiary, computer programmer in the U.S. Army, and vice president of a Fortune 500 company. At age 40, he had an epiphany and became a stand-up comedian. We talk with Ron about his life, love of music, job as a concert financier for the Australian Odyssey Festival, an affair he had with one of James Brown's backup singers, and his experience as an opening act for Ringo Starr. Part one of two, this episode entitled Shock. But first, let's hear a little bit of his stand-up comedy. This clip entitled Van Seats. I've driven America. I, I like to drive and I don't like to fly, you know. If you drive America, you see things. Man, Americans are salespeople. We like to sell things alongside the road. You ever notice that? You build a road, we'll turn it into a drive-through flea market out there. <laughs> Give us some time, we're going to sell some shit. Sell everything. Fruit and vegetables for sale alongside the road. Antiques for sale alongside the road. Velvet paintings of Elvis for sale along. Velvet paintings of Jesus. Sometimes Elvis and Jesus together. <laughs> Sometimes they're joined by Willie Nelson. Uh, that's the Holy Trinity and certain obscure cults in the hills of Tennessee. All through the South, you got explosives for sale alongside the road in case you just got to blow something up. Are we at war with somebody, Bubba Bubba? I don't think Bubba Bob. I don't think we are. Well, goddamn it, let's blow something up anyway. Oddest thing I ever saw, saw a guy in Texas built a stand alongside a freeway in the middle of nowhere selling van seats. Seats for a van. Nothing else in the middle of nowhere. I thought, who in the hell is buying van seats in the middle of nowhere? I mean, is this an impulse buy that I don't know about? Is it... Someone driving the freeway that goes, you know, Myrtle, driving this here van, standing up. Getting to be goddamn uncomfortable. I, I like the van, I like the van. I'm not saying that. Saying if I had something to sit down on. Oh, look at this, Mur, look at this one. I gotta ship the There was another tagline to it, but I can't follow that, so I'll... Let's get right into it. I'd like to welcome Ron Schock to Music Life Radio. Thanks for coming and spending some time with us today. Absolutely. 
Can you describe your childhood, your early upbringing? <laughs> uh, I come from an unusual family, and is that my dad was one of the all-time great guys, and my mother was a religious psychopath, <laughs> and uh, uh, my dad was a really interesting fella. I mean, really interesting fella. He was a, a professional softball pitcher, uh, traveled around the country, sponsored by Phillips 66. Uh, this is pre-World War II, before I was born. Uh, have you ever heard of the King and His Court? They, they do it now. It's a guy, he travels with a, like a catcher, a first baseman, and one fielder. And hmm. because he's going to strike everybody out, and yeah. those that he doesn't strike out, they're going to dribble the ball to one of these people. <laughs> and he was like that. Oh, wow. So when World War II started, when you know right after Pearl Harbor, as millions did, he uh, he joined the army. And when they found out who he was, uh, he became a softball pitcher in the army all through World War II. Oh, wow. He was everywhere. He was at <laughs> North Africa. He was at Anzio. He was at Normandy. Wow. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. But he never saw a shot fired in anger. He waited until everything was over, and then he came in and pitched softball exhibitions for yeah, yeah. for the troops. Right, so he's got all these battle ribbons, and he <laughs> and he speaks a little German. So his MOS, which is military occupational specialty, there is no MOS for softball pitcher. So. He was an interpreter, but he was so far back that by the time any German got there, he'd been interrogated <laughs> 20 times, right? It's just a formality. So he's he, this major, equivalent to a major uh, officer, has gotten back to him, and he's got his firearm with him. And my dad said, uh, you know, I'm going to need that firearm. And the guy goes, the Geneva Convention rules on war say that field officers are allowed to keep their their personal sidearms. My dad said, shock rules are all of my prisoners are unarmed. Now, either give me the gun or I'm going to have the MP shoot you. <laughs> so I have a German officer's gun oh, at home. Uh, and when he, he, he since he went through all, all of the European theater, right, when they came home, all those guys hadn't been paid in, in months and months and months until right before they get on the ship. So you've got six weeks crossing with a bunch of soldiers who are flush with cash. So my dad started a crap game on there. And when he got off that boat, he had enough money to buy us a house, buy himself a new car, and buy a dairy. <laughs> And he wow. went to the dairy business, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and he was he was um, a pool hustler, the best storyteller still to this day I've ever heard, and uh, just an all around great guy. Except he was gone mm. thirty five weeks out of the year, mm -hmm. and my sister and I are left with you know witch hazel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> My mother used to come in. You wonder why I'm a little warped, folks. My mother used to come into the bedroom at night and go, I hate you. <laughs> I oh, wish, I'd wish you had never been bored. <laughs> ah, ah, good night to you, too, Mom. <laughs> so, you know, there's a and, – and that's how I ended up in the seminary. I had to go to – I went to Catholic schools.
And I was reading uh, Robert Ingersoll uh, when I was in like the fifth grade. And for those of you who don't know who Robert Ingersoll is, because uh, they don't want you to know who he is, he was a uh, a comic in a way. He was a lecturer, and in the late 1800s, he used to go around and debate publicly the preachers of the day. You know, they were the TV preachers of the day. These guys used to go around and hold these great big uh, tent revival meetings and collect a bunch of money doing it, right? Oh, you sure. know, same old, same old. And uh, he would go debate. He would challenge them to a debate and, uh, uh, you know, and would just dissect because they insist on talking about the Bible as it's written in English. And, you know, there's so many contradictions. You know what I mean? And everybody knows Jesus, who incidentally was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy, uh, spoke spoke the king's fucking English. Uh, everybody knows that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But he published all these arguments. All these were transcribed. And so I got the p- complete works of Robert Ingersoll. I'm in the fifth grade. How I ever found them, I have no idea. I just did. And so I'd be reading Ingersoll at night and bringing it up the next day in class. And, you know, I'm asking them questions they, they cannot answer. They don't, you know, because their dogma has made them in a, in a blind alley. They can't get out. You know what I mean? They, they, whatever they say is going to be contradictory. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so my mother, in her infant psychotic wisdom, decided that what I really needed was full-scale monastery monk-like study so that I could see the error of my ways and become a uh, celibate Roman Catholic priest. And uh, You're in severe need of programming. <laughs> severe need of programming. And I, I was blessed and cursed with... Uh, I said this one time, and I, I said that I, I saw clearly, but I reacted poorly Uh to what I saw. I saw the hypocrisy. I saw, you know, my mother's religion was flawed the way she understood it. You know what I mean? That what she was saying made no sense. Uh, and, it, and I also found out something about how people will, will cling to beliefs that they have regardless I would tell the mothers of my friends, my mom doesn't like me. Matter of fact, she hates me. And they go, oh, no, Ronnie, your mother loves you. (laughs) All mothers love their children. No, no, my mom comes into my room at night and tells me she hates me. Mm -hmm. No, she doesn't, Ronnie. (laughs) And I mean, that was the reaction I got to from every adult that I tried to tell this to. Mm-hmm. Do you follow me? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And uh, and even their kids would be going, no, Mom, you, you don't understand. <laughs> Ronnie's mama is a piece <laughs> of fucking work. <laughs> and uh, so I, I saw all this hypocrisy, you know, uh, from the nuns who are supposedly married to Jesus, but they're beating the living fuck out of kids. 
to priests who are molesters and brutal brutalizers and you know and I'm going man you <laughs> know and and it just flipped a switch in me I became a you know I left that seminary and became a little fucking criminal <laughs> I went in there the all-American boy star athlete straight A student I came out of there a <laughs> little fucking criminal. <laughs> it is fuck it, man. <laughs> now, before we get into that, I'd like to have some background knowledge of your musical experiences growing up. Was music a part of your life at all? Not like it is now. Yeah. No, not like it is now. Understand, I was born in 1942. Okay, there wasn't rock and roll, you know, until the early 50s. Now... I was living in Amarillo, uh, Texas, and Roswell, New Mexico, and Carlton. These are little dinky towns out in the middle of nowhere. But late at night, I could get that radio station out. I believe it was Little Rock, or it may have been Memphis, the King Biscuit Flower. Oh, album. yeah. Oh, yeah. And they played like Screaming Ronnie Hawkins and stuff like that. And so when I could get that radio, radio station in these little rinky towns I was in late at night when you could get them. Uh, yes, I became a rock and roller fairly early, you know. And, of course, it was, you know, all the adults were against it. <laughs> yeah, so, so at that point in your life, that was perfect, right? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was the rebel without a cause, you know. I was... I was the rebel without a cause, so, I, you know, on, on paper, I should be the all-American kid. So let's get into that. After you got out of the seminary, what happened next? I didn't get out of the seminary. I left the seminary. Oh, left the seminary. I left the seminary. And we weren't that far from uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas, it's a place called Subiaco is where I was at. And one, I just, fuck it, man. I couldn't get my parents to believe me, you know, what was going on there. I was in a fight every week. Every week, at least one fight, sometimes two or three, because not only would I argue with the priests, these upperclassmen and the people who are studying for the fucking priesthood are are brutalizing the, the newer, younger kids. Well, my dad gave me boxing gloves before he gave me a baseball glove. I think he knew that I was going to have I wasn't going to be very big and I was going to have a mouth on me. And it was probably best I knew how to defend myself. So I could scrap. I fought golden gloves, and I wouldn't be pushed around. Uh, You know, I was in a fight 15 minutes from the day I walked in, 15 minutes from the time my parents dropped me off at Subiaco Monastery and Boarding Academy (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and Penal Colony. Uh, uh, This upperclassman comes up to me and goes, go buy me some ice cream. And I tell him, well, my dad had told me about hazing, so I kind of knew what to expect, yeah. right? And I go, okay, give me the money, and I'll, I'll go buy you ice cream. What do you want? <laughs> and he goes, no, you're going to use your own money. Oh, no, no, I'm not. No, <laughs> no, that would be that would go beyond hazing into uh, into robbery. <laughs> and uh, he goes, well, I'll, I'll beat the shit out of you. And, you know, so I hit him <laughs> and, and whipped his ass and— uh, he was the most popular fucking junior in school, <laughs> <laughs> and he has got two brothers. <laughs> so, so the battle is on. So, and I'm, 
I'm fighting the priests and I'm fighting these other kids as well. And I was, I was, nobody else would do it. Nobody, they kowtowed. I learned something that year in that monastery. You know, push comes to shove. They won't buck authority. They just won't do it. Even when they know authority is wrong, they don't have the balls to stand up and say, that's not right. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, so I just said, fuck it. Just fuck it, man. I hitchhiked to Fort Smith, and I stole a car in Fort Smith. First thing I ever stole in my life was a car. And I drove to, uh, I tell the story on, on that one, you know, that ends up in the car chase, and that ends me up in Orleans Parish Prison. So I go from a monastery to Orleans Parish Prison in um, four days. <laughs> and that's quite a shock, right? I mean. Well, actually, the truth be known, Orleans Parish Prison was much more pleasant than Subiaco was. <laughs> I had a much better time. I become a trustee. You know, if you can't trust the little kid with glasses, who are you going <laughs> to trust? You know, I could type, I could read, you know, I, I, I was educated, you know, I stood out in, in, in an average jail population, right? I'm, I'm different. And the authorities, they, you know, trustees in big county jails, they, they, they do a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? They cook the food, they clean the floors, they do the, a lot of the shit work typing, you know, they run the elevators, they check prisoners in, they da, 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 da. They, they need, you know, uh, trustees. So my buddy from the tier becomes a trustee and he knows people and he becomes the editor of the prison newspaper, the Orleans Parish Prison Pelican, and immediately requests me as, you know, the assistant editor. So I was running the elevator, but I get promoted to be the assistant editor of the Orleans Parish Prison Pelican. Well, there's me, and his name's Frank Arenell, a Cuban, and another guy named Petrie, who was arrested for trying to rob a streetwalker in the French Quarter who proceeded to beat the living fuck out of him <laughs> and chases him down the street. And that's how they catch him is the police catch him before she can catch him. He's, he's forgotten where he's put his car. <laughs> he's not a master criminal. No. He's not a master criminal. And uh, Frank could draw. Boy, he could draw. He could draw people, and it would look like a black-and-white photograph. Well, we have a printing press. What do men want in prison? Well, they want women. Well, we can't provide women. (laughs) We can't provide young boys. What's the next best thing? They'd like to have pictures of (laughs) naked women being fucked. (laughs) Ask any of them. (laughs) (laughs) Know what I mean? So Frank, and I've always had a good imagination, <laughs> and uh, we make up a story, uh, and, and the jail was, was segregated. You had, in Paris prison, you had the white population, you had the black population. So we made up a story about a man, his wife, and their maid, 
and in the one we sell to the white population, the man and wife are white, the maid is black. The ones we sell to this the, the black population, same fucking story, <laughs> but it's the man and his wife are black and the maid is white. So, you know, and uh, we sell them, we, <laughs> we franchise them out to the Zuzu wagon people. A Zuzu wagon is the commissary wagon that they push up and down the tiers in in those old, you know, county jails and parish prisons in the South. Sure. And for some reason or another, that cart and that man is called the Zuzu man. Hmm. And he sings it out, you know, Zuzu man on the tier. <laughs> and he would have underneath the candy bars that week's edition <laughs> of uh you know the the adventures of our uh, of our couple <laughs> <laughs> and when i get out i do 9 months on a year sentence and i get out my dad's come down to to uh take me home i've got like $1500 on me uh, which is a tremendous that's, amount of money that's a lot of money yeah 58 he goes well, I hope you learned your lesson. <laughs> and I go, I did. <laughs> Let's go eat. <laughs> I'll buy. <laughs> so there, there's a story I don't think I've ever told before. So was it a big change from Subiaco? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, was it worse than Subiaco? Absolutely not. It was much better, and I learned much more, okay, of uh, practical information. And I know it sounds odd to say it. I said this on one of the TV shows. I said I, I met more honest people in prison and jail than I ever met in the corporate boardroom. Mm, yeah. Ever met, because I don't think I met a single fucking <laughs> one in the corporate boardroom. But there were some people in jail and in prison whose word was good. You know what I mean? If they uh-huh. said this is the way it is, that's the way it is. And and you didn't have to question it, you know? Do you think it was because they just didn't really have anything to lose or it was just their, their That's own because that's personnel. who they were. That's it. When I did time in California at DVI in Soledad, uh, I spent 18 months in solitary confinement. Uh I was, for the most part, the only white guy in these disciplinary segregated areas. You know, they have euphemism. I was in, there's varying levels of how bad solitaire can get, okay, from not all that bad, you know, 23-hour day lockup, uh, but you can, you know, you, you've, you've got a radio and, you you know, you get, they bring you food three times a day, and then they've got one where they take away your radio and you only get a sandwich a day, and then they've got one where you don't fucking eat anything other than this gruel they call restricted diet, which is vegetables they've cooked down until they're just mush, yeah. and then they freeze them, okay, <laughs> and then cut them. They give you a little square of it. That's Dude, your meal. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I did 29 days on that. But the people I was in there with, we talked all of the time to each other. And most of those guys 
were straight up, you know, as I listened to their life stories, you know, and where they were from and what other opportunities they had, you know, you go to yourself, you know, I can understand why they did what they did. Do you follow me? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they, some of these guys grew up in projects where there, there, there were no jobs. There was no, you know, go get a job. What fucking job is he going to get? <laughs> you know, there ain't a job for a young black man within three miles in any direction. He has to go catch a bus to catch another bus to go to the McDonald's of whatever that day was, you know, yeah. someplace at higher minimum wage, you know, who are they going to hire? The black kid from the project? who has to catch two buses to get there or the white kid who lives around the corner. Yeah. Duh. You know, and you think, well, gee whiz, no wonder he, you know, he started a gang, (laughs) started robbing people. You know what I mean? He had to create his own work. (laughs) In a way, yeah. They didn't leave him a lot of options, you know, and he was, they were proud men. You know, we were all in disciplinary segregation because the prison population couldn't handle us, okay? Me, I could organize. They didn't like that. Mm, You know, uh, I could get people to, you know, stand together, and they don't like that. You know, these other guys, uh, one of my best friends in there was the the head of the, the nascent Black Power movement and the other one was the the head of what later became the mexican mafia his name was mosca but the only person ever visited me was mosca's mother they wanted me to come live with them when i got out you know uh helped mosca learn how to read english you got a lot of fucking time when you're (laughs) 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 you know what i mean and you're in a cell next to a guy you can Hold that book out there and show him what words we're talking about, blah, blah, blah. You got a lot of time. Yeah. You got a lot of time. And so I learned a certain amount of empathy, you know, for some criminals. Uh Uh-huh. Some criminals. Not all of them. You know, a good number of them are just thugs and little monsters. (laughs) But some of them, you, you have to give them some respect. They did what I probably would have done had I been in their exact same situation. You know what I mean? I would assume, fuck this. Now, I think at one point you had mentioned that you had first learned about or heard the Beatles while you were in prison. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. We had two radio channels. Okay. One from Northern California, one from Southern California. And, uh, it's when I became a Dodger fan, I might ask. We oh. got the Dodger broadcast, and I got to listen to Vince Scully. And late at night, we would get music from the south and music from the north. I think it was on the Northern California station. They started playing the Beatles. This would be 63 or so. I got out in either late 64 or early 65. I don't remember. What kind of impact did that have on you? The Beatles are getting out. <laughs> well, both, actually. The Beatles first and then getting out. I like the Beatles because they were bothering people. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he even wore my hair in a Beatle cut. The prison authorities <laughs> made me stop. And I said, well, why? And he goes, well, because <coughs> it looks too girl-like. Mm. I go, 
have you noticed that nobody's fucking with me? <laughs> and uh, they go, well, yeah, but if you do it, others are going to do it, and it's just going to cause problems. <laughs> well, I, I, it wasn't a big enough deal that I was willing to make a stand at. I'd gotten out of solitary, and uh, now I want to get my ass out of the prison, and I'm not going to do it by taking stands on silly issues. So. <laughs> yeah. But was I a, I wasn't a big music fan of theirs per se, and other than a fan of them for what they were doing, what they stood for, what, what they, they stood, doing. it bothered people. They wow. were just different, <laughs> you know, and people were bothered by their difference, you know, and they were obviously very good at what they did, you know. But once I got out of prison, and you know, I had to actually like go make a living because uh, I'd made a promise to myself I wasn't going back to, to prison, you know. And how you do that is don't do anything, don't do anything that, that, would, put get, you. that <laughs> would put you there. <laughs> you know, it's not all that difficult. <laughs> so I really didn't pick up my musical tastes again until maybe 68. And all of a sudden, I could start listening to music. I'd gotten to a point I'd, you know, made a big jump in my income. And all of a sudden, I'd found a career that I could do and do real well and made a lot of money. Is that when you got into the publishing? Yeah, that's when I got in the book business. Now, now, so you ended up uh, living in New York at some point, right, in Harlem? Yeah, but that was, yeah, I lived in Harlem. That was great fun. But it was when I was in the Army. Oh, okay. Uh, I was stationed at Fort Monmouth. I was, I'm, my MOS is, is 7.11, I believe, but it's computer programmer. I was a computer programmer in 1961. Wow. The Army had the only computers there were. Uh-huh. They offered me, after I did basic training, they offered me officer's candidate school because I, I knew how to dismantle a rifle. I knew how to march. My, you know, I knew all this stuff. You had a lot of know. skills. Yeah, I had a lot of skills. I was a good soldier, and um, I didn't want to be an officer and, and sign up for another three or four years, whatever it was. So they gave me computer programming, and it's in Fort Monmouth. People were graduating from MIT and joining the army to go to the school. Uh, it's the yeah. only place you can learn computer programming. High tech skills. Huh? Yeah. Very high. It was it was it was the cutting edge of 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 everything of everything. Wow. The one I learned on was Moby Dick, made by Sylvania. It was three stories tall and a block long. <laughs> but all I had to do was go to the school and pass it. Uh-huh. I didn't have to stand formation. I didn't have to pull any guard duty. I didn't have to show up for any inspections. All I had to do was go to this school and pass it. One of my buddies says, hey, my aunt owns an apartment building in New York City. She'll let us have an apartment. We can leave here Friday night. We'd be in New York City by 7, you know. We'd be stay there through Sunday night, catch an early train here, go to school. Cool. That's fun. Have fun. (laughs) We get there. We Central Station, we start heading towards where he lives. I think he's a white guy. He's he's that real light 
skinned black guy, and he and it and he's got a red tint to him. He's got freckles. Mm-hmm. Remember, he just had got a lot of races in him, like somebody from New Orleans, yeah. right? And uh, and pretty soon we're the, in my opinion, we're the only two white guys in this trade. We're getting off, <laughs> and the, everybody's is is black. And I go, uh, Tom, you know, everybody's black here. And he goes, hey, Ronnie, I'm black. <laughs> I go, really? He goes, yeah, that bother you? I said, no, not at all. I said, you know, I didn't do it. I said, I thought you were, you know, one of those guys like from New Orleans. And I explained what I just said to him. So uh, his aunt, and, and it's the major, I, w- I can't remember what street number it is that you get out. It's the geographical heart of Harlem. As you come up that subway, you're looking across the street at a, like a six-story red brick apartment building, mm-hmm. and his aunt owns that. Oh, wow. And uh, they just love me. The, 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 the black women that live there, there's a bunch of them, guessing their 60s that live there, and uh, uh, they find out I'm from the deep south, you know, and then have <laughs> lived in New Orleans or had been in New Orleans, and they just, they adopt me and Tom. Yeah, yeah. And we were just, we had a great time. So, you know, I lived in Harlem for seven months there every weekend and had a fabulous time. Fabulous time. At that point in time, did you learn about James Brown? Oh, yeah. Saw him at yeah. the Apollo. Yeah. And uh, later on, had much later on, come to think about it, I had an affair with one of his backup singers. <laughs> that was really cool. How did, how did that happen? Well, she worked in an office next to an office I had, an incredibly beautiful woman. And uh, I was married. She wasn't. We'd talk. We'd meet down the coffee shop, talk. She asked me if I wanted to go to a uh, uh, a meeting of militant feminists. Oh, I said sure, <laughs> and I uh, said so we went there and to a motel afterwards. <laughs> started a two year affair with her. Wow. Uh, yes, <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> a little trip down memory lane. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Uh, I also wanted to ask you, what was what was the, that James Brown concert like the first time that you saw him? You know, I was so stunned that I have no real memory of that uh-huh. other than being stunned, yeah. you know, of, I mean, I had never experienced anything at all like that ever, you know, the only concerts i've been to remember when they well you don't remember they used to have rock and roll reviews Uh in the 50s there'd be like 10 artists on there they all one hit wonders you know this group would go up and do their one hit and then the next band would come out they'd do their one hit and they were in not very big venues and you know and i mean girls kind of squealed a little bit but they were calm Uh compared to what I saw there, you know, <laughs> I mean, the energy, huh? it was a different <laughs> world, the energy. And I went, now this is something, <laughs> you know, that's just that energy inside of uh, a theater when somebody that's really, really good and really, really popular hits that stage and you've never seen anything like it in your life. It was fucking great, but I couldn't tell you anything he did. Yeah. 
Were there any other musicians during that time period in the 60s that really grabbed your attention? Elvis did. First record, little 45 I bought was Heartbreak Hotel. First album I bought was uh, uh, Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra, uh, which surprised my mother a lot. <laughs> and uh, I, I started hearing these guys on King Biscuit that were never never did become big, you know, Ronnie Hawkins being one. Perkins got his start on there, Carl. You know, and I kind of fell in love with that. Hillbilly rock, I don't know what else to call it, you know, blues rock, and, you know, and they'd start, they'd play some blues on there. So I'd always kind of like that. And you just can't find it, you know, at that time, Mm -hmm. other than in just certain areas of, of the country. And that was my preference. But then once I started making money, and, and see, so you call it the publishing business. I call, we call it the book business. It was okay. the book business. You know, we didn't have anything to do with publishing. We were selling those fucking books. You were just selling books. You betcha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> selling books and making money. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Educating America and making a nice hunk of change while we're doing it. And, uh, uh, it allowed me to start going to see things, you know what I mean? For several years, I was just real busy. Oh, sure. You know, you know, I threw a pop festival in Australia. You knew that. I was going right? to ask you about that. The okay. Odyssey Festival, right? Odyssey, yeah. Mm-hmm. In Wallachia, New South Wales. Uh, God was that fun. God was that fun. It rained just like at Woodstock. It rained. It was going to be Friday, Saturday, and it was going to close down about sunset Sunday, okay? Well, Friday, it's pouring rain. It's pouring rain, and we can't get the stage up. It's it's Woodstock in in miniature. You know, it wasn't nearly as big. It was like 30,000 people ended up. That's there. pretty big. That's pretty uh-huh. big. You uh-huh. know, it's not 250,000 Uh and, uh, but then the skies cleared and the people came and, uh, my friend got married as part of a promo, Bobby Oliver got married on stage and he <laughs> got married by a kind of a guru hippie, uh, who was real well known nationally be like a cross between Andy Warhol and Allen Ginsberg mm. or, you know what I mean? Yeah. He just kind of a, the national hippie. They're national flower power <laughs> philosopher, so to speak. And uh, they got married by him and wrote. I was the best man at that wedding, too. Uh-huh. And uh, they rode off the stage uh, on a motorcycle after <laughs> taking a vow to love, tickle, and obey. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've had some interesting wedding stories. <laughs> How did this whole festival come about? Now, were you a financer of it? We were a financer. Okay. They came to us. When, when we hit Australia, when I say we, me and my partner, a guy named Ray Patton, we went to Australia to work for British Printing. They had recruited us to open up Australia. They took us away from Macmillan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was in one area and I was in another. And we, we both did the same thing. We did it really well, right? 
Well, they needed more than one, you know, because they wanted to know Melbourne and Brisbane and Sydney, you know, Not all sure. rock and roll. It's going to take more than one person. <laughs> uh, so we go to work for British Printing, get the whole thing set up, and find out the guy that had recruited us plans on taking our organization and turning it over to one of his cronies <laughs> when uh, he is uh, – uh, when we have it built. Okay. Okay. And we're going to yeah. become subordinates to somebody else. And we go, well, fuck this. <laughs> so in secret, we negotiate a deal with several publishing companies, including Groyer and Walt Disney to open up Australia for them. Okay. And we just take all the people we had hired from <laughs> British printing, including the secretaries and the warehouse people and <laughs> moved them over <laughs> and started our own business. We become the darling of the press there. Uh, just several different things. We were men about town, you know. We, we had front row seats for, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and front row seats for, 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 oh, for great. Martin. And, and you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, all, we, we tipped. Aussies don't tip. We mm-hmm. did. We, we couldn't spend all the money we <laughs> were making. And we tried. Yeah. And, uh, we were Americans in a foreign land, and, you know, all of a sudden we've got a booming business. We open up a Mexican restaurant. The press likes us. So people know who we are, know that we're making money. These people come to us and say, you know, we, we're looking for money to back a concert, Odyssey, and they tell us the lineup and blah, blah, blah. And we go, yeah, we're not interested, you know. I hope you wish you all the luck. You know, we're going to buy tickets. We'll be there, but it's not our cup of tea. Well, they get all these bands lined up and everything. They get other fun, but it runs out, and they're caught between a rock and a hard spot. They come back to us and say, look, all we need, you know, is the final 100000 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. It was 130 which was a fair amount of money. Yeah. And, uh Okay, we'll do it, but we want the first X number of dollars off the top. Mm-hmm. Plus, we want a couple of the the uh, concessions. Mm-hmm. And we had a watermelon, which made us a fortune, and um, like an icy thing, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so we got a lot of our people out there, you know, working at the <laughs> pot festival. And that's how it came to be, you know. And uh, it was great fun. What were the bands on the lineup? Black Sabbath. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, a group called Piranha. And as far as I know, Piranha later on became what are the, was the genesis for ACDC. But I could be wrong. That's very interesting. Yeah. You know, I could huh. be wrong. But they were a very popular, straight-ahead, hard rock band yeah. from Australia. They were – it was all uh, – you know, Aussie bands other mm. than the, the, the main headliner. And I'm trying to think if Sabbath didn't back out at the last minute and we got somebody else or they got somebody else. We weren't involved in this. Oh, sure, yeah. Right, You're you know what I mean? We put up the fucking money and yeah. showed up on the day of the concert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and counted the <laughs> money coming in. Huh? <laughs> Sold some watermelon and Sold some watermelons and some ices and count that money. We got first count. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? And that's that's real important. <laughs> that's where we were. Was coming and see in Australia, no bill's bigger than a twenty. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when you get up around a hundred thousand dollars, fives, tens, ones, and twos, 
There are no 20s. There are no 50s. It's a lot of paper. (laughs) We've got it stuffed in duffel bags and crammed into sports cars to drive it back into Sydney. (laughs) (laughs) Duffel bags full of money. It was really funny. (laughs) Was that your only venture into the world of music as far as financing? Yeah, yeah. we, We backed a couple of other things. But we weren't involved in them, you know, that blood, sweat and tears came and it was the same guys, but under a different name was there. You know, they, they change these promotion companies oh, all sure. the time after they go broke <laughs> on something or another. Well, they you burn know, they, some artists and they have to change. They burn name, some but... <laughs> artists and they show up under another name <laughs> until they make it, you know, and then they keep that name. Yeah. Uh, it seemed to me like we financed part of that. We had so many things going on. Mm. So many things. We had trade a tape, which was eight track stereos. They were cutting edge technology. Mm. So we bring them to Australia and we start trade a tape. And you buy a tape player with speakers uh, for your house and a tape player and speakers for your car. And we install them for you and you get 20 tapes for this set amount, but you can take any number of those 20 tapes at the end of any given amount of time and go exchange them at one of our stores for a new tape based on the idea. Nobody really listens to any more than five or six albums, you know, at one time, right? They get hooked on whatever album they listen to it and listen to a couple of other ones. And they have all these hundreds of albums that they're not listening to at all. And mm-hmm. so we, we just wanted to keep the tapes in circulation, right? And if one of them breaks, you know, we'll replace it, blah, blah, blah. Well, fuck, we got these things everywhere. Mm. And uh, money's coming in left, right, center. We're buying our stuff from Mitsubishi in Japan. They're shipping it by ship. <sighs> Aussies do go on strike. Mm-hmm. And they strike the waterfront. And there's no nothing being unloaded, mm-hmm. and they sit out there for weeks. I mean, it was like an eight week or something long. It's got ships stacked up and down all over the South Pacific. Well, we've already sold these fucking machines, and they're sitting on these boats, and we can't get to them. Mm-hmm. So we got to air freight replacement machines mm-hmm. from Japan. So <laughs> that that really that really hurt. <laughs> 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 that was one of the deals that didn't work out like planned. <laughs> but, you know, we got that. We opened the Mexican restaurant. We opened a Mexican restaurant because we couldn't get Mexican food uh, in want, Australia. We want some Mexican food. So. We want Mexican food. So we flew back to Houston and hired the chef at our favorite Mexican restaurant and bought the supplies, had the supplies shipped to us, you know, to Australia from America because yeah. you couldn't get the right spices or anything. Uh-huh. Basically, just so we'd have a place to go eat Mexican food. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> no, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So at some point in your life, you decided that the corporate world was not right for you. What, what point in your life was that? It wasn't the corporate world per se. When I got out of the penitentiary, I made a logical 
decision to change my life and not ever go to jail again. Mm -hmm. Hence, I wouldn't do anything that sent me to jail. That did not mean I wouldn't do anything dishonest or, (laughs) uh, you know, it just, I wouldn't do anything that was illegal. Uh When I went in the corporate world, we were just thieves, but we stole with a pencil. Mm-hmm. You know, we stole with an insinuation. We stole with a lie of some way or another. And I had come full circle on my beliefs in God and creation uh, from my early age. Remember, I was raised fundamentalist Catholic, mm-hmm. broke away, so this can't possibly be true, but came back to, well— no, I think there is a God, and there is such a thing as right and wrong. And so I started thinking more about it. And as I thought more about it, I realized that if I really wanted to find, I don't want to sound metaphysical, the real me, to find out what it is that I'm supposed to do in the overall scheme of things, I've got to quit stealing and lying. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was doing in the corporate world. And... Though it sounds, I don't know what. It was either get out or lose my soul, because that's what I was doing. You know, I have a gift to gab. I can talk. I can tell a story. And I can tell that corporate story really well. You know what I mean? And uh, I couldn't do that. It wasn't the corporate world per se. It was the what I was doing in the corporate uh-huh. world. I don't give a fuck sure. what they're doing. Yeah. I was making me a thief. <laughs> Make me a better, you know, I was like the master liar. <laughs> I'd, there, I'd teach the lies. Was there any one specific person or event or book or something that started me on this search? Exactly. Yes. Uh, but no one's ever heard of him. His name was Bud Mosher. Mm-hmm. I ran across him in 1972 in Houston, and he pointed me in the right direction. And uh, from there, and I've thought about what I think about pretty much every day since then. Mm -hmm. What was it that he gave you that made you reassess your life? Answers that made sense of what is. Answers that made sense. Um, I no kid in the fifth grade reads Robert Ingersoll. <laughs> okay, no kid in grade school reads City of God by Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. in grade school. Okay, I always I had this quest of wanting to know. Uh, a, is there, for lack of a better word, a God? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if so, if the answer is yes, then what is mankind's relationship to that, for lack of a better word, God? God is such a bad word because it draws up an already preconceived idea of what I am talking about. Sure. And it's based on what somebody else was talking about. <laughs> you know, a better word would be source. 
and he gave me answers, or actually, in a way, he gave me questions whose answers I could come to myself and made sense, which changed my life. Changed my life. Uh, I became an honest person, and that was a struggle because dishonesty paid really well. (laughs) 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 Honesty is no real high demand for honesty (laughs) in today's world. What's your main thing? I'm honest. Oh, well, shit, you can't work here. (laughs) And uh, it also led me to believe that there is a purpose in creation. It's did you ever read the chaos theory? The book? Have you ever heard of it? Uh, I've heard of it. I don't, I don't You know, computers were designed to do one thing. There was actually they had one goal and that was to be able to predict the weather. Hmm. Do you know that it's the it's the one thing they still, still can't, can't do? Really. <laughs> Why? Because weather is is affected by chaos. Mm-hmm. And chaos If you look at it in any limited view, life looks to be chaotic, Mm -hmm. any limited view. But if you get far enough away and look at it, everything in the universe is operating together. Everything, everything, Mm -hmm. the the tiniest of things we see down there, the little little atoms that have little things spinning around them. But you know what? That that atom and those little things spinning around it are also spinning around other atoms and da 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 boom ba da ba boom ba da ba da ba And it's a fucking universe. But it all works together. If it all works together, then it would seem like that and since they all have their individual characteristics working together with other things to have their individual characteristics, but they all work together, there must there might be something for me to do. Mm-hmm. I have these gifts. Mm-hmm. I can do things a lot of people can't do, talking being one of them. And I used it to make money. So I said, okay, I don't know what to do, but I won't ever do anything just for the money again. So show me a sign. Bada boom, bada bing. I ended up in comedy. I think the thing that makes us laugh the most in our life is something that we saw right there in front of us. I don't think any comic will ever be able to tell you a joke that is as funny as something you saw one time right there. You laughed until you thought you were going to fucking die, okay? You couldn't get your breath. You were laughing so hard, right? Everybody's had that experience. I'm going to tell you the thing that I saw that made me laugh harder than anything I've ever seen in my life. I was in a military school. My roommate was the middleweight wrestling champion of the state of Oklahoma, and his name was Mel. He was strong as a fucking ox. And uh, we're studying for a test one night, and this other guy named Jerry comes over, and he wants to get a card game up. And Jerry's got kind of a high, squeaky voice. I got that, like kind of Jerry Lewis on on amphetamines. And... uh, uh, he, he, you know, come on, let's play some cards, you know. And Mel goes, we're, we're, we're studying, Jerry. He said, oh, you know, you guys are always studying. Let's play some cards. they got the table set up and everything. 
He said, God damn it, Jerry, we're studying. Now get out of here. And Jerry leaves. About 10 minutes later, Jerry's back. Hey, come on, guys. You know, it's enough's enough. Let's play some cards. The guys are awake. Come on. Mel says, God damn it, Jerry, get out of here and don't come back. Jerry, oh, you want a stick in the mud. And he leaves. About five minutes later, Jerry walks back in that room. He's All he's got on is some gym shorts, and he's eating a ham and cheese sandwich. Before he can say a word, Mel said, Jerry, if you're not out of here by the time I count to three, I'm going to take that ham and cheese sandwich, and I'm going to shove it up your ass. Well, they've got my undivided attention by now. Jerry goes, oh, well, come on, Mel. You don't I, I'm not even... He said, one. Oh, come on, Mel. You're not going to do anything. I've known you. He said, two. Oh, Mel, I didn't... Boom! And I mean, he is on Mel just leaps over and he grabs Jerry's head and he brings it down like this and he takes his leg and puts it over his head. Then he takes both hands and pulls them up behind him and holds them together with one hand. As I mentioned earlier, Mel is as strong as a fucking ox, okay? And he reaches behind Jerry and he pulls down his gym shorts and then he takes the ham and cheese sandwich out of his hand and reaches behind him and he shoved it up his ass. And that's not the funniest thing I've ever seen. The funniest thing I've ever seen was Jerry digging the ham sandwich back out of his ass going, oh god damn that wasn't funny man funniest <laughs> thing I ever saw <laughs> that wraps up part one of the Ron Shock interview of course you can check him out at his website ronshock.com he's got some great blogs you can buy t-shirts check out all of his music check out that uh $75 package for all of his CDs and includes DVDs as well. Uh, one of the most uh, uh, greatest American storytellers of our time. Thanks also to Kevin McLeod for the background music. You can check out more of his work at incompetech.com. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Thanks for listening to Music Live Radio, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>